Sponsorship of the KQED live audio stream comes from Xfinity Mobile, featuring customized wireless plans. Customers can choose unlimited, buy the gig, shared data, or a mix of both and switch it up anytime. Learn more at XfinityMobile.com. Hi, my name's Ken Walton, and uh, I'm going to be reading from uh, my book, Fake, Forgery, Lies, and eBay. And uh, this is a book about my experiences selling art, fine, and otherwise on eBay uh, a number of years ago. And I will be reading uh, an excerpted portion from Chapter 4. At the time, all that I loved about selling art obscured anything negative I did on eBay. Despite the shill bidding, I sold a lot of good paintings at prices that were lower than what galleries would have charged. Many of my customers wrote to tell me how thrilled they were with what they bought. Each time I received a message like this, I felt like I'd changed someone's life for the better, even if in a small way. This sense of fulfillment outweighed anything I got from dispensing legal advice to municipal bureaucrats and made me believe that what I was doing was honorable, or mostly honorable anyway. As the first half of 1999 lapsed into the second, though, my tricks continued and the stakes grew larger. In August, Fetterman brought me another painting. It measured 24 by 12 inches, and in the middle of it, the artist had sculpted a half-inch thick figure out of glue or caulk. This stick figure, its long limbs akimbo, stood suspended in a flat, swirling wash of light brownish green. Below the figure was an illegible cursive signature. What's this? I asked, pointing at the scrawled name. Well, Fetterman said, I'm not going to lie to you. <laughs> oh, really? It does look a little bit like the signature of a Swiss guy named Alberto Giacometti, he said, but I'm just not very sure. I think we're better off selling on, e- on eBay and not saying it's by him. You'd be the better one to do that. I pulled the painting close to my face and studied the signature. It looked original to me. Have you black-lighted it? I knew by now how to spot a fake signature on a painting. Under a black light, an added signature swam, seemed to float over the surface and fluoresce differently from the rest of the painting. Yeah, he said. It looks good, but there's just no way to know. It would be nearly impossible to get a painting by this guy authenticated. That night, I bought a black light from Home Depot and scanned the surface of the painting in my windowless bathroom. The signature didn't stand out. I searched the internet and learned that Giacometti was primarily known as a sculptor of lean figures, similar to the one in the painting. So was this just another remarkable coincidence, or did Fetterman know how to add a signature in a way that couldn't be detected with a black light? What I should have been asking myself is whether I really wanted to know, or if I even cared anymore. Six months earlier, I would have tossed and turned at night if I thought I might be in possession of a forged painting. Now I went to sleep thinking about the money I would make. The auction for the stick figure painting followed a typical pattern. Within the first few days, the price rose beyond what an ugly little stick figure painting might ordinarily command. But this time, potential buyers were further encouraged by the high bidder on the painting, P. Giacometti at bluemail.ch. One could only assume that this was a member of the artist's family, perhaps his favorite nephew. I suspected otherwise. I knew it had to be Fetterman. Yeah, it's one of my new bidders, he said with a snicker when I asked him about it. Don't you think that's a little too obvious? We're going to get a good price for this thing. Maybe you should lay off the shilling. Hey, I like this painting, he said. If I end up as high bidder, I'll buy it. This is how it was with Fetterman. He always maintained the ruse, even with me, that his bids were legitimate attempts to purchase paintings, even when he was bidding on something he owned. This was probably dictated by his ever-present paranoia, so much a part of him that it influenced nearly every decision he made. When we went out for beers, he refused to bring any ID for fear that a bouncer at a bar would memorize his address and wrestle a gang of thieves to rob his house while he was at the bar. When he refused to admit to showbidding over the phone, 
He probably did so because he feared that his line was tapped. On the last day of the auction, real bidders drove the price to 10600 As I sat in my office and watched the bidding come to a close, I realized that I would make more on this single auction than I earned in an entire month at my job. How could I focus on my work when eBay was bringing in such sums? And how could I fret about whether or not this painting was real when someone was willing to pay me so much for it? The person who was willing to pay so much for it was John Metropolis, who bought the Klum painting from me seven months earlier. Shortly after the close of the auction, he called and said he was sending an art appraiser to pick it up. I told Fetterman about the appraiser. Shit, he said. Tell him you don't accept pickups. That's your policy. If he doesn't like it, we'll sell it to one of the other bidders. He lives in Grass Valley, I said. It's only 45 minutes away. How can I tell him he can't pick up a painting that he's buying for ten grand? Shit, he said again, almost whispering this time. What's the art appraiser's name? Rudy Curiel. He paused. I think I've heard of that guy. Well, do your best, man. Meet him in a neutral location. Don't let him come to your house. Rudy Curiel arrived at my office with a mousy blonde woman he introduced as his attorney. He was in his mid-forties, but his mane of brown, wavy hair, smooth olive complexion, and trim build made him look much younger. When he smiled beneath his woolly mustache and stuck out his hand to shake mine, I noticed that he bore a striking resemblance to Geraldo Rivera, circa 1990. I escorted Rudy and the woman to a small, windowless conference room on the 27th floor and set the painting on the chair next to me. I cringed as I looked at the stick figure glistening under the harsh fluorescent lights. If Fetterman had faked this painting, there was no way it would get past this guy. Rudy spoke first, his baritone voice oily and measured, like a late-night disc jockey or a seasoned telemarketer. Well, my friend, I'm not sure if you've heard me, but I've been working as an art appraiser and dealer in this town for many years. He flashed his Geraldo smile and continued. I deal in a lot of high-end paintings, and, I'm, and I have an international clientele. Bigger smile. I'm well known among my colleagues in art circles, and if my daughter were living in Sacramento, I'd probably be working in New York or Los Angeles. I spend a lot of time in both places. Even bigger, toothy smile. Rudy plucked a yellowed newspaper article from his leather portfolio and spread it out on the table in front of me. It curled at the corners and was held together by tape. A couple of paragraphs were underlined in ballpoint pen and highlighted in yellow. You may have read about me in the Sacramento Bee, he said. I glanced at the date on the article and saw that it was from six years ago. They interviewed me and asked if a painting had ever sold for more than a million dollars in Sacramento. I told them that I had sold paintings for this much, but not in this town. He paused. I nodded. So, as you can see, I'm well known around here. Rudy cleared his throat and exchanged a smile with the woman. I was delighted when my friend John Metropolis asked me to look at this painting for him. I've come across some real gems in my career, and we're hoping this may be another. So, shall we get to the matter at hand? Of course. I slid the painting across the table, feeling hesitant as I did so, but doing my best not to let it show. I'd like to take a look at it under a black light, he said. He flipped the switch by the conference room door and scanned the surface of the painting with his 18-inch blue wand, explaining how it could detect changes. If someone added this signature... I'm not saying that you would have, but someone could have in the past. This black light would reveal it to me. Interesting, I said. Rudy finished his analysis and removed his glasses. Well, my friend, I think what you may have here is an original work by a Swiss artist named Alberto Giacometti. Yes, that's what John Metropolis said, but I really have no way of knowing. I just got it from an estate sale. Well, I think I may be able to help to authenticate it, he said. And if I can help John sell it, I'll send some of the proceeds your way. I believe in taking care of the people who help me. That's very nice of you. Rudy pulled a cashier's check for $10,600 from his portfolio, laid it on the table, and pushed it towards me. Congratulations, young man. 
This was an astute purchase. Many people would have passed this painting up. Thanks, I just buy what I like. We returned to the lobby. I'll let you know what happens, Rudy said. He and the woman shook my hand and disappeared into the elevator. I stood there for a moment, staring at the check, thinking about what had just transpired. He was supposed to be an expert. I just sat there, showed him the painting, and he bought it. It was all too easy. The Giacometti was part of the estate of Eve Mitchell, a collection of paintings Fetterman claimed to have discovered in a shop in a small town a hundred miles south of Sacramento. I bought them for next to nothing, he said. The guy was liquidating her estate, and he didn't know what he had. There's some really interesting stuff. Eve Mitchell was listed in Davenport's. Mitchell, Evelyn, Eve, 1907, Napa, California, 200 to $700. Hughes, painter, sculptor, ceramics, pupil of Boynton, Obata, Stackpole. She wasn't a major artist, but she was in the book, which gave her work some value. Fetterman showed me a stack of pencil and ink drawings signed Eve Mitchell and some nice pastels. The most interesting pieces in the collection were not by Mitchell herself, though. They were the drawings and paintings that, like the Giacometti, appeared to have been done by more major artists. In all, there were about seven or eight pieces like this that I sold over the next few months. It was around this time that I began to feel certain Fetterman was altering the paintings he was giving to me to sell, though I wasn't sure how. I knew it was possible to find valuable paintings in unexpected places, but what Fetterman claimed to have unearthed was too good to be true, and now I no longer cared. I didn't ask, and he didn't tell. I knew my role. I auctioned the paintings on eBay, let the buyers make assumptions, and deposited the checks as they came in. Selling art on eBay seemed to have changed my life so profoundly, in so many positive ways, that it was easy to turn my back on any ethical reservations I may have had. I wasn't just selling paintings for Fetterman, though. He had a stake in only a small fraction of what I sold on eBay. By this time I was mostly independent, and I ran my eBay business with oil deficiency. I could write a description of a painting in five minutes. I bought software that kept track of what I was selling, who had paid, and how much profit I'd made. I got a $1,500 digital camera. I knew where to buy bubble wrap and styrofoam peanuts at wholesale and where to scavenge for used cardboard boxes. I was on a first-name basis with the cheapest freight shipper in town. I hunted for art nearly every weekend, sometimes traveling hundreds of miles to ferret out paintings from shops in small towns around Northern California, Oregon, and Nevada. Hunting for art cut into my leisure time. When I went to Lake Tahoe for the weekend to visit friends, I bowed out early to go to a flea market. When Chris and I took what was supposed to be a romantic weekend trip to Ashland, Oregon, I dragged her to at least a dozen antique stores along the way, stopping only when she insisted. My obsession with eBay was eating away at our relationship. As I bought more art, I developed a knack for spotting things I could undoubtedly resell for more. The trick? I found art in places where it wasn't wanted. I once found a striking, abstract expressionist painting from the early 1960s at a thrift store in Turlock, a farming community in the San Joaquin Valley, smack dab in the center of California. The residents of Turlock, perhaps not especially fond of abstract expressionism, had let the painting languish in the store for months, but I knew I could sell it to someone in a big city where mid-century modern design had caught on. I bought it for $30 and auctioned it for $760 to a man in Los Angeles. He was thrilled with the purchase, as he would have had to pay more for it at a chic LA gallery. While not every painting succeeded to such a degree, this kind of performance was not uncommon, and nearly all of my paintings brought in at least twice what I paid for them. Even when selling paintings that had not been tampered with, I still sometimes crossed the line and played the naive seller, putting up something I, I knew might be mistaken for a better work. When I came across a painting that appeared to be by a listed artist but obviously was not, due to its age, its size, the materials used, or some information that came along with it, 
I was always willing to describe it in a way that would entice bidders to speculate. Even as I was making a good income selling my own paintings, I still counted on an occasional mystery painting from Fetterman to fill my pockets with cash. His were the ones that brought in the most money, and I began to look forward to them. One of these paintings was a small California landscape depicting a lichen-green hillside scattered with gnarled oaks. It was signed P. Gray and, with its darkened canvas and oily patina, appeared to be very old. When Fetterman brought it to my house, it stank of varnish, and I asked him why. It had a few chips and missing paint, so I did a little restoration and cleaned it, he said. I put some varnish on top, just store it near a window and let it sit under the sun for a while. I looked up the name and found Percy Gray, a California artist known for painting oak-laden hillsides. Once again, the signature looked original under a black light, even though I suspected Fetterman may have added it. But what did it matter? I put the painting up for auction, played dumb, and sold it for $7,600. The high bidder was Michael Luther, the CEO of Omaha-based Aiden Enterprises, a company that funded Internet startups and invested in technology patents. In a telephone call after the auction, he told me with great pride that he was a self-made multimillionaire and mentioned his net worth. I told him I didn't know whether the painting was by Percy Gray and could offer no guarantee, and he seemed eager to take the risk. He had studied art, he told me, and he had a good feeling about this piece. He trusted his gut, and he liked to take risks. When he sent a check, he wrote, I do not care whether or not this turns out to be by Percy Gray. It has been such a great adventure to find it and buy it from you. The thrilling adventure was soon over. Several weeks after the sale, he wrote, told me an art expert had deemed the painting a fake and demanded a refund. I was suspicious when I received it, and it smelled like varnish, he wrote. This time I didn't consult Fetterman or pause to reflect on whether it might be good business to accept a return. Luther had taken a risk, bought the painting knowing it might not be authentic, and also knowing that if it were authentic it would be worth double what he paid. Now he was experiencing buyer's remorse. I had grown to have contempt for this type of customer. I viewed them as greed-driven opportunists who sought to take advantage of unknowing sellers. This helped smother the, the ironic fact that I was the real opportunist, driven by my own greed, taking advantage of buyers from whom I'd hidden the truth. I wasn't being honest with myself, but I had to concoct a rationalization to keep things going. I couldn't allow myself to think I was doing anything wrong. Luther was furious and I, when I refused his request. I will sue you, he threatened. This is fraud, now reported to the FBI. I didn't fear a lawsuit because I knew it would cost too much to sue me over a $7,600 painting. I also scoffed at his threat to report me to the authorities. I seriously doubt the FBI will be interested in my eBay activities, I wrote, displaying my arrogance and an appalling lack of prescience. You have no reason to report this because I did not misrepresent this painting. I told myself buyers like Luther deserved what they got. We were playing the same game, and I'd beaten them. I couldn't feel sorry for a person who had willingly participated and lost. I consoled myself by giving a refund to a woman I thought had slipped into the game by accident and didn't belong. She paid $2,300 for one of the pieces from the estate of Eve Mitchell, a small pastel portrait of a Polynesian woman that resembled the work of Paul Gauguin and was, was initialed P.G. She called after she found out that it was not what she hoped, sobbing, and explained that she was a stay-at-home mother of two children who'd made a big mistake, gotten in over her head, gotten swept up when she thought she'd stumbled across a treasure. I heard her husband yelling at her in the background. This was too much for me to bear. I hadn't yet given Fetterman his share of the proceeds of this sale, and, over his vociferous protests, I issued a refund. Within a week, I'd sold the painting to one of the other people who had placed a bid in the auction. As I became further embroiled in the world of eBay, changes were taking place in my personal world. On our second try, Chris and I succeeded in breaking up. Things had been going sour for months, and we'd both 
decided that our relationship was not meant to be. My eBay fixation hadn't helped. Time I could have devoted to Chris, I instead spent selling art online. I was also giving serious thought to quitting the firm. I was making nearly as much money selling art as I was at work, and my job performance was continuing to suffer as a result. I dreamed of financing my own law practice with the money I was earning as an auctioneer. I shared eBay stories with my friends. Most of them were amazed, or at least amused, by the tales of rampant speculation undertaken by my customers. So you'd never claimed it was by the artist, they asked. Nope, I replied. And they paid how much for it? I sometimes hinted that I thought Fetterman might have tampered with some of the paintings, but few people seemed very alarmed by this when I assured them that I wasn't lying in my descriptions. I was less open about the show bidding. I didn't tell many people about it, and when I did, and explained how common it was on eBay, most of them didn't seem to think it was that big a deal. Some of them wanted to try eBay themselves. A couple of friends in the Bay Area began buying paintings at a local flea market and reselling them on eBay with great success. To Fetterman, this was betrayal. Telling people about eBay is like stealing money from me, he said. How are we going to find good art if all your friends are buying it all up under our noses? But I wasn't concerned. I knew there was plenty of art to go around. Not everyone shared my enthusiasm for what I did on eBay. My brother Matt continued to be skeptical. He'd met Fetterman, disliked him instantly, and was sure he was using me to pass off forgeries. Matt changed the subject whenever I started talking about eBay. My friend Dave, who had met Fetterman years earlier, had similar reservations. When I told him about some of the paintings I'd gotten from Fetterman and admitted that I thought they might not be real, he said, Man, if you keep hanging out with Fetterman, you can end up in trouble someday. I'm worried about you. Other warnings were not so friendly. I sold a landscape painting with a cryptic symbol in the lower right-hand corner, a stylized X inside a circle, to a woman in nearby Davis, California, who thought it was a work by the, the artist Xavier Martinez. She paid $750 and never complained. Months later, after I'd unloaded several of the other paintings from the estate of Eve Mitchell, she sent an email message. I see what you're doing, she wrote. You offer paintings with confusing signatures and pretend you don't know what they are. You let the greed of the buyers take over and they pay ridiculous prices. I figured it out when I saw that horrendous Giacometti sell for so much. It is an interesting game you're playing. I wonder how long you can keep it up. No refund request. No threat. No accusation of fraud. Just a message. I'm on to you. She wasn't the only one who was watching me. Thanks for listening. To subscribe to the Writer's Block and hear more stories, please visit www.kqed.org slash writer's block. The Writer's Block is produced by KQED. KQED.